Okay, let's uh, <clears throat> let's uh, today we're starting in uh, or we are in chapter thirty and of uh, uh, Genesis uh, Genesis chapter thirty, and we are uh, picking it up in verse twenty five. And we'll be going down through about verse 36, Lord willing. Actually, we're going to go back a little bit because we didn't quite finish last week uh, what we wanted to look at last week in the previous verses. So we'll pick that up and then we'll, then we'll go on from verse 25 on. But last week we were looking uh, basically at the first part of chapter 30. We actually looked a little bit back in chapter 29. So uh, kind of glance down through that. Refresh your minds about what we talked about. And then tell me, what did we talk about last week? You ready to say something, Rick? Do it. Discontent. How did that come up? Isn't that interesting? They, they both want what the other woman has. <clears throat> they both have a really great gift from God. One of them is having children and the other has the love of her husband, but neither one of them are content with what they've got. So, What else did we learn? What did we learn about contentment? Yeah, more, doesn't it? Start looking at what other people have, wanting what other people have, and it can just ruin your relationship with them. You're so focused on what they've got that you don't focus on them. What else? Really, and that's encouraging to know, isn't it? Because we we face really ugly situations in life, and it's good to know that that's not out of God's providential control. Yeah, we're going to go through some awful ugly stuff in the chapters ahead. That's right. Yeah. What else? We really struggled with that at the end of class last week, didn't we? We talked about Rachel and what what could she have done to help Leah? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if there's much Leah could have done for Rachel. Uh, you can't. There's not much you can do to help a woman have a baby, but but uh, but I think there's some things that Rachel could have done. But we struggled with that because Rachel's got her own problems. She's got her own. Uh, issues that she's struggling with and, and she's obviously been placed in a very difficult situation uh, with the whole switch that Laban pulled and the whole thing with Leah. And so Rachel has her own her own set of difficulties that she has to overcome. And the question is, is she going to be able to look beyond those problems to be able to do the kind of things for Leah that she could have done? But we see quite clearly that she did not do. And uh, and we wrestled with that last week, and and uh, and uh, that's kind of the issue that Rick was bringing up here. And as I was thinking about that again later in, uh, after class last week and later in the week, I was thinking about that. We all find ourselves in in situations where we've been wronged, and and where we're having to deal with having been wronged. And the question is, you know, at, at what point does that cycle of People hurting one another stop. And and the point I was trying to make last week is is Rachel had an opportunity to stop that cycle. And uh, and I don't I don't think she did. But the phrase that came to my mind I heard many, many years ago when 
You know, when we're in situations like that, we want the other person to stop. The, we want the other person to stop the cycle. We want the other person to to make the first move. But the phrase the phrase that came to my mind last week that I heard many years ago is is um, if not now, when? And if not here, where? And if not me, who? And I think when it comes to this issue of stopping the cycle of hurt, I think those are the questions we have to ask ourselves. If, if I'm not going to do it, and if I'm not going to do it now, and if I'm not going to do it here, when is it going to happen? I can't count on somebody else doing it. So, anything else that comes to your mind that we talked about last week? Yes, yes, yeah. And and I passed out this chart last week. You probably still have it. Uh, there are a few more up here. Does, does anybody not have one of these charts? Okay, there you go. There you go. Which kind of shows the breakdown because the real issue of the passage we looked at, anybody else need a chart? Uh, uh, the real issue uh, in the passage last week is not so much uh, the sequence of the births as it is which women had which children. And so this chart will help you understand that. Uh, uh, and as Karen was pointing out, uh, there probably is a considerable amount of overlap in the birth of these children. So that all of them, it's, it's quite apparent, all of them, or it seems apparent anyway through, from, the, from the text, that all of these, these uh, children, with the exception of Benjamin, who's kind of down there in the corner, kind of, he's a special case, but, but all the rest of them, 11 boys and one girl, well, excuse, excuse me, at least 11 boys, the 11, uh, uh, 11 patriarchs of, of Israel, uh, were all born uh, probably within a period of seven years. Okay, uh, Dinah, we're not exactly sure. She simply mentioned in the genealogy there because she plays an important role in some events that happen later in the story. And so we're just kind of giving her, uh, her name as a context. Uh, and so... So by the time that Jacob leaves uh, Herod and returns to Canaan, he's returning with 12 named children. Uh, so uh, including the 11 boys and, and Dinah. And then, of course, when he gets back to Canaan, then eventually Benjamin is born. And we'll get to that story eventually. But that chart is there for your just kind of help you organize and see you know, that all those names kind of flow together and it gets kind of confusing. Uh, but each one of those names has a meaning associated with it, and we talked about that too last week. So, uh, well, in, in our story last week, we talked, uh, we got down uh, through the whole story. We talked some about the story of the mandrakes and how uh, Leah came, uh, or, or uh, excuse me, Reuben came back from the field with some mandrakes for his mother Leah. And uh, and then there was the whole negotiation that goes on there, and we saw uh, how how Rachel is not really sensitive to the pain that Leah is feeling, and we saw that uh, in that passage. Uh, let's uh, let's pick it up. Uh, let's pick up the story then in verse 22, because uh, that's kind of where we stopped, and we'll go on down. I'll read down through. Verse 36 uh, of chapter 30, which will include the passage that we're looking at today. So he says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me depart. For you know my service which I have rendered to you. But Laban said to him, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. He continued, Name your wages and I will give it. But he said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. 
For you had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I go, turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household? So he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such will be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Laban said, good, let it be according to your word. So he, that is Laban, removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it and all the black ones among the sheep and gave them into the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Okay. Well, if last week's story is difficult to understand, it gets exponentially more complex today and even more so next week as we get into next week and we start reading all this stuff about the striped uh, almond rods and poplar rods and all that sort of thing. So uh, we've got a lot of heavy stuff to work our way through and try to figure out uh, in this week and next week. But before we do, just going back to the to the end of the story there of the of the building of of Jacob's family, the birth of his children, and of course the last one we have there is the birth of Joseph, and and it says that uh, there in verse 22 it says God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb, and that phrase there we have God remembered Rachel. What does that remind you of? We've talked about that before. Okay, he said the same thing about Sarah. What else? Well, actually, I think he does eventually, but of course that's in Exodus. We haven't talked about that. Yeah. But there's another incident we've talked about where it says God remembered somebody. Yeah, he said it about Noah. Remember Noah's out there in that boat? He's floating around in that boat for for a year or so and and uh, you know he just gets in the boat and all the storms come and everything he doesn't hear anything from God and then eventually it says God remembered Noah and then comes the story of how God finally brings Noah to dry land and, and that sort of thing but uh, what have we said about this idea of God remembering people he remembered Sarah he remembers Rachel here he remembers Noah does that mean that God has forgotten and suddenly he just kind of goes oh yeah forgot about Noah out there in the boat what does it mean when he says God remembered somebody okay okay oftentimes it does he's he's made a promise or he's implied a promise and uh, and it's been a long time coming Okay, so we have, for example, Sarah that we just talked about. And Sarah has this promise from God and she's gone all this long time and she's been barren for 25, well, actually more than 25 years, probably 50 years or more, that she has been barren. And it appears from our perspective that God has forgotten her, right? From the human point of view, we don't see God's action. We don't see God's activity. We don't see God's involvement in this particular situation. And so it would be easy for us to conclude that God's just gotten busy elsewhere. Right? And, but when Scripture tells us God remembered Noah, or God remembered Sarah, or God remembered Rachel, it's not like God has forgotten and then just suddenly something jars his memory and he goes, oh yeah, now I remember. I've got Rachel over here and I need to deal with Rachel. The fact is God has remembered her all along. 
God has not been indifferent to her situation. God has not, uh, God has not been careless about her. But there's been a time in God's mind and a purpose in God's mind and He's fulfilling that purpose and He's fulfilling that time. And so ultimately, eventually, those purposes are accomplished and it becomes the time for God to act. And so Scripture says God has remembered. Well, God remembered all throughout the whole period of delay, if you will. But this is now the time at which He acts. Okay, This should be really comforting to us, shouldn't it? Because we go through these seasons in our life, like Sarah or Noah or Rachel, we go through these seasons in our life of barrenness, or we go through these seasons in our life of floating in a boat with you know judgment all around us and 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 no way out. And you know, I, can you imagine the cabin fever that family of Noah had after about a year locked up in that boat, uh, smelling those animals? I tell you, you know, I begin to wonder. You know, and we all go through seasons like that in our life. And we can take comfort from the fact that God, through all that season of loneliness or that season of difficulty or that season of isolation or that season of barrenness, as we've gone through, as we go through that whole long period in our life, that God is remembering and ultimately he's going to fulfill his promises to us. He's going to complete His purposes in our life. Okay? And so that's what we see with Rachel. And so finally, after, you know, and, and when you think about it, it's really not all that long. She's gone about six years, okay, since she got married. She's gone about six years. Well, that's a long time if you're wanting to have children. But on the scale of comparison to Rebecca or Sarah, she really has not had that long wait. But she's waited six years and for her it's been a long time. And, you know, oftentimes when I'm struggling with things in my life, you know, they seem like huge mountains. If I compared my struggles against the struggles of other people sometimes, they wouldn't look all that big, you know. But for me, they're pretty big. And so even though for Rachel it was only six years, where for Leah, I mean for Rebecca, uh, her mother-in-law, it was 20 years. And for Sarah, it was probably 50 or more years. For Rachel, six years is a long time to wait, especially when you've got your competitor over there bearing children at the rate of about one a year. Okay, So it's been a long, hard struggle for her, but eventually she has a child and she names him what? She names him Joseph, which means what? Add, okay? Uh, Joseph's name has the idea of adding. And it's interesting that when she has Joseph, she doesn't name him something like God has answered or God has remembered or something like that. But what is she thinking? Why does she name him Add? I want more. I want another one. Maybe God will give me another son. Of course, ultimately He does and she dies in childbirth, of course, with Benjamin. But... But God gives to her Joseph. Now, I have no idea why God made Rachel wait six years. I have no idea why God gave to Dinah six boys and a daughter at least, but only gave to Rachel at this point in the story, Joseph, and then eventually Reuben. But of course, this child that Rachel... Pardon? Benjamin. Benjamin, what did I say? Reuben, yeah, Benjamin, I'm sorry. Uh, but this child that God gives to her, Joseph, becomes kind of the central feature of the story, doesn't he? And as when we get uh, as we get on in the story, we'll begin about chapter thirty-seven, thirty-eight, and there we'll start looking at the story of Joseph, the unfolding story of Joseph. And he pretty much dominates the scene for the scene for the rest of the book of Genesis. So he really gets, Joseph gets about as much print as Abraham. Okay? So he really plays a pretty dramatic role in the life of Israel and in, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the life of the nation. Okay? And so I don't know why God waited like he did with Rachel. I don't know what God's purpose was, but we do see that finally when he gives to her a son, he gives to her a very important son. In fact, 
he's not only an important son, but he seems to be, of all the sons of Jacob, at least up to this point, the most spiritual, the most in tune with God. When we, when, we think, when we think about the story of Joseph, and of course when we get there, we'll look at this in more detail. But when we think about the story of Joseph, I cannot imagine any other son of Jacob who could have done what Joseph did. Can you? I mean, you think about the character of these boys, these men as they grow up, and I can't think of any of them who would have had the faith in God and the commitment to moral purity that was necessary for Joseph to be the means by which the nation of Israel is saved, the family is saved and preserved. You know. So God is doing something marvelous here through Rachel. But of course, she can't see all that. She could only see that if she saw it by faith. Okay. So we have then the birth of Joseph. And, and so for now... Jacob's family is kind of complete, and he senses that. But he has a problem. What is his problem? Okay, he's still living with Laban, which means what? Everything is Laban's. So here he is. He's now worked for uh, for 14 years for Laban. Okay. Seven years since he got married, he now has at least twelve children. Okay, there may there uh, may be at this by this time other girls uh, who are not mentioned, but there are at least uh, at least twelve children at this point. He has this whole family that belongs to him. He has two wives, but he is still really considered to be part of Laban's clan. Okay, remember this whole patriarchal culture we talked about uh, many, many moons ago when we started the book of Genesis as we got going in the book of Genesis. But he's really part of of Laban's clan. Now, the thing is, Joseph is really good at what he does. Okay, He's smart. He's gifted. He's really good. As a, he's, a, he's a great rancher. And one of the reasons he's a great rancher is He's blessed of God, right? God has blessed him, okay? So, I don't want to give all the credit to Joseph. I do think he was probably pretty smart at what he did, and I think we'll see that next week. Uh, it gets a little convoluted there, but, but he's pretty sharp. He understands animals. He understands ranching, if you will. But the primary thing is that he's blessed of God. And so, during these seven years, or 14 years actually, during these 14 years that he's been working for Laban, He's been generating a great deal of success, right? So we discover, as we read in the passage that we looked at today, we discover that that when Jacob first came to Laban, he really didn't have a lot. Okay? He says what you had was little or was small. Okay, you, you, and and I and I don't know there if he means really that he was that he you know he he had a pretty meager. Uh, business going there, you know, or if he's just speaking comparatively, I, I don't know for sure. But but what Jacob is saying there is when I got here, you really didn't have a lot. And now you've got a great multitude, meaning a multitude of cattle, etc., sheep and goats and that sort of thing. OK, so Laban has or excuse me, Jacob has generated this tremendous wealth. But where has it gone? It's all gone to Laban. Okay? Because he's working for Laban. He's just getting he's just getting wages, so to speak. Basically, he's just being sustained as a member of the clan. Okay. But it comes to this point now that Jacob looks around him and he sees he's got two wives and twelve kids, at least, and he's saying, Hey, it's about time I started my own clan. Remember, one of the things we talked about when we talked about patriarchal culture is that you'll have a, you'll have a patriarch uh, and, and then he has his children and his grandchildren that all live within this same kind of family compound. And the patriarch is financially, materially responsible for the entire clan. 
then as that clan grows and gets bigger and bigger, eventually it has to split because it becomes too big. That's what we see happen with Abraham and Lot. We're back there in uh, uh, earlier in, in Genesis. They just got too big and they had to separate. So then Lot pulled away from or separated from Abraham's clan and goes over to start his own clan. He's not very successful at it, but that's ultimately what's happening there. Well, this is now what Jacob wants to do. He, he sees how big and how wealthy Laban is getting as a result of his labors, and he sees his own family, and basically he's saying, I want to start my own clan. <laughs> I need to get out from under Laban and begin to provide for my household myself. Okay, So that's what he wants to do. So there in 25, in verse 25, he comes to Laban, uh, and he says to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Now, there are actually two things that are going on here with Jacob, right? One is he wants to establish his own clan. He wants to provide for his own family. He wants to be the patriarch, okay? But what else is going on? He wants to go back home. Now, as he considers going back home, keep in mind, why did he leave home in the first place? His brother was going to kill him. Okay. And his mom said to him, (laughs) his mother said to him, when it's safe, I'll send for you and get you. They both assumed it was going to be a matter of a few days because they didn't realize how deeply they had hurt Esau. Okay. But that was the condition under which he left. Now, as we look at what Jacob says here at the beginning of today's passage, does that raise any questions in your mind? Somehow, Esau's burning anger is not an issue to Jacob. Now, admittedly, it's been 14 years and he didn't think too much of Jacob, of Esau's, uh, uh, what he did to Esau in the first place. He didn't think it was all that bad. So, so I don't know if he just thinks, well, he's gotten over it. But really, I think what's going on here is that we're seeing reflected in this, that Jacob wants to go back home and he's really not giving much thought to Esau. Now, eventually, in a few chapters, as he does go back home, as he gets closer to home, we'll see he really does give some pretty serious thought to what Esau's thinking about him, right? Okay. So, so I don't think the issue here is that Jacob doesn't care or doesn't think that Esau's still got a grudge against him. It's just that it's not an issue to Jacob anymore. And there's a reason it's not an issue to Jacob. Remember back there when he first left home and he'd been gone a couple days from home, he had an encounter. Where was that encounter? At Bethel. And his encounter was with whom? Who did he encounter at Bethel? Yeah, he encountered the Lord, okay? He had an encounter with the Lord. He had that dream. And he goes, man, I didn't know the Lord was here. But surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't know what he says. And so he has this encounter. And there was some, remember, there was, something that, there was something that changed in Jacob at Bethel. We talked about it when we looked at that story. There was something that changed about his whole journey at Bethel. Do you remember what that was? When he left Beersheba, what was he? Well, yeah, but what was he? When he had to flee, when he had to flee Beersheba, when he had to flee his father's house, he was a what? He was a fugitive. 
But remember when he got to Bethel, we said that that Jacob was transformed from a fugitive to a what? He was transformed from a fugitive to a pilgrim. And so, so this whole sojourn of Jacob in Haran is not the sojourn of a fugitive. It's the sojourn of a pilgrim. Now, the thing about a pilgrimage is it has a spiritual objective to it. You see, when he left, when he left Beersheba, it was to flee the anger of his brother. And he left as a fugitive. But from Bethel on, he is now on a sojourn that has a spiritual objective to it. And, and until the spiritual objective of a pilgrimage is completed, the pilgrimage is not over, right? Now, so Jacob is no longer that concerned about the anger of his brother because he's no longer a fugitive. He's a pilgrim. And, and what's really at issue to him is just simply fulfilling, and I don't know how clearly this is thought through in Jacob's mind, but clearly this is what God is doing in the life of Jacob, that, that until such time as the purpose of God, the spiritual purpose of Jacob's sojournings are complete, Jacob cannot go back home. Now, what's interesting about Jacob is from Bethel on, he's always a pilgrim. So, so even though at this point he's thinking, you know, that's my place and that's my country. And he's thinking about Canaan and he's thinking about Beersheba. In reality, where does Jacob die? He dies in Egypt, doesn't he? That's because Jacob, Jacob, as, as ultimately a man of faith, his life is always a pilgrimage. And he's never home. That's, of course, the point that Hebrews makes for us about the patriarchs, doesn't it? About Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all three. So even though Jacob is kind of thinking, because that's where he grew up, he's kind of thinking, well, that's home back there. Which is just the opposite of what Abraham was thinking. And Isaac was thinking, you know, Abraham says, you know, you go back to my people, he says to his servant. And, and Isaac and Rebekah, they send Jacob back to their people. They're thinking of Haran back home. But when Jacob goes to Haran, he's not thinking of Haran as home. He's thinking of Canaan as home. But Canaan isn't home. And Haran isn't home. Because Jacob is a... Jacob is a, is a man called of God to fulfill the purposes of God and he has no home in this world. And so the scriptures tell us that they were looking for a city whose architect and builder was God, speaking specifically of Abraham, but of all the patriarchs. And that again just reminds us that you and I really don't have a home here. You know, I... I moved to Oklahoma in the early 70s and I thought I was going to be here about uh, maybe a few weeks. You know, well, I'm still here and it's been 40 years, okay? And so I've been here. I got married here. I've raised my kids here. But you know what? I still don't think Oklahoma's home. In fact, you know, I love my country and I, you know, I love the liberties and the freedoms we have and I love many things about our heritage. But when I think about the United States and America, you know, it's just not my home. I'm just not completely comfortable here. I don't know about you, but there's something about this place that I'm just not comfortable with. And it's because I'm certainly more comfortable here than I am anywhere else. And I've traveled all over the world and I'm more comfortable here than anywhere else. But I'm just not 
comfortable. Are you? Because as men and women of faith, we're never home. Until we're home in that city whose architect and builder is God. So this here, so here we have Jacob and he wants to go back home, but even when he gets back home, he finds out it's really not home, as we'll see as we go on through the story. But he wants to go back home. And so he approaches Laban and he says to Laban, he says, send me away. Notice he doesn't ask. <laughs> he just tells him, okay? He says, send me away. You know how I've worked for you. Basically, what he's saying is, I have fulfilled my bargain. I have fulfilled my duty and my obligation to you. And in the process, you've made a killing off of me. Okay? So he says, he says, you, uh, he says, you send me home. You know, you know how I served you. And I want to go home to my people. I want to go home to my place, to my country. He says, I want to take the wives and the children for whom I have served you. And you know how I have served you. So now send me away. Let me go. Okay. Why does he say let me go? He's fulfilled his obligation. Okay. Okay. Why does he have to ask Laban to let him go? Even though he's really in the place to be able to tell Laban, as he does initially, send me away. Then he says, let me go. Why does he say that? Is he respecting the patriarch and then also the daughters? He has two of his daughters. Well, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, that, that's part of it. And that comes into play uh, when he finally does leave that Laban gets pretty upset that he takes his daughters. And I know you gave them to the guy as a wife. What would you expect? But, but there's something else going on here. Amen. Now? Does Laban have the power to keep him? Yeah. What is the power he's got? What power does he have? He doesn't have legal power, right? Because... Jacob's fulfilled his obligation. What power does Laban have? And implying what? But but he he but but Jacob's fulfilled his obligation. I think he has the will. Okay, but how's that going to keep Jacob? If Jacob wants to go, well let, well let me ask you this: When Jacob finally does go, what does Laban do? He goes after him, sword in hand. I'm going to get him and bring him back. Now, the reason he doesn't, we'll talk about later. <laughs> okay, but uh, just keep you in suspense if you haven't read the story. Okay, but he goes after him, sword in hand. He's got the sword. Okay, so it's not that Jacob doesn't have the right to leave. It's not that Jacob hasn't fulfilled all of his fiduciary responsibilities, if you will. He's done all of that. It's not that it's not that he would be illegally taking these women who these daughters of Laban, they are now Jacob's wives. They belong to Jacob. And under the patriarchal system, when a woman gets married, she becomes a part of the clan into which she marries. So the, the so Laban has no claim on those women, although he thinks he does, he has no claim on those women. Okay. So so the reason Jacob is asking for permission to leave is not because he needs Laban's permission. He just wants to be able to get away safely. Okay. Well, that is. Excuse me. With the wealth, Jacob is basically leaving with nothing. That's true. He kind of gets Laban's blessing, and although he has wives and kids. He, has no he doesn't have a bank account. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's a good point. Okay. And there's a trust issue there. He knows Laban is not an honest man. Yeah. With the wives. That's right. That's right. So, those are Laban's strong points. Okay. What are Jacob's strong points? What does Jacob bring to this negotiation? He can get a job anywhere. Okay. Okay. Laban desperately needs... What Jacob has. What does Jacob have? He has God's blessing on his life. He has God's blessing. And he has, coupled with that, he has his skills and his abilities as a, you know, as a herdsman or as a rancher or whatever you want to call him. Okay, So he has God's blessing on his life. 
Now, Laban knows this. How does Laban know that Jacob has God's blessing on his life? Excuse me? Who told him? By divination. He says, I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. Now, boy, that's interesting, isn't it? You have the word divination and Yahweh in the same sentence. You have this, and this is we talked a little bit about this last week, you have this syncretism that's going on with, with Laban, where he's just kind of mixing all the gods together. He's just kind of stirring him up in, his, in a pot and making his own little religion, you know. And so what we have him doing here is we have, we have Laban employing the, employing the techniques of spiritism, employing the techniques of superstition, and coming up with some idea about the true and living God. Now, it just so happens he's correct. Now, I don't know if he's correct because in his divination process, whatever technique he used, he got the right answer. I, I don't know how he came up with the right answer. But what is interesting about Laban here, and this is the thing we have to keep in mind when we read uh, the accounts of the servant when he came uh, to the house of, of Laban and Bethuel to get Rebekah, and then this account of Jacob in Haran, well, is there's is that we see Laban's family oftentimes throwing around the name of Yahweh. And it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking they really worship Yahweh, but they only worship Yahweh in the sense that he was just part of their pantheon of gods. And so they really don't worship Yahweh. Okay. Now, so what we have here is we have this really strange mixture of the worship of Yahweh with this spiritism, divination thing going on. And we think, well, that's strange. But what strikes me is how oftentimes we see that today, don't we? In fact, oftentimes we see it in the church. And you go, oh, no, we don't see that kind of thing in the church. But we do see it in the church. You know, I wonder how many Christians there are who have good luck charms. Little symbols of good fortune that they keep because they think somehow there's some merit to them. How many Christians are there who, for whatever reason, make sure they consult the newspaper in the morning to read their astrological forecast? Scripture teaches us that that's idolatry. You know how oftentimes you ask in your life, what is your sign? You know? What do you answer when somebody asks you, what is your sign? You know? Well, my sign isn't Aquarius or Capricorn or whatever all those others are. My sign and your sign, if you're a believer, is the sign of the cross. That's my sign. I was thinking about that yesterday and I was thinking, why haven't I ever thought to tell people that when they ask me, well, what is your sign? <laughs> you know? Next time somebody asks me, what is my sign? I hope I have the remembrance, the memory to go, well, my sign is the cross of Christ. Because that's where all of my future and my destiny lies. It doesn't lie in the stars. It doesn't lie in the arrangement of the stars. It doesn't, it doesn't lie in my destiny and my future. It does not lie in what arrangement of the stars I happen to be born under. My future and my destiny is all wrapped up in the cross of Jesus Christ. But we have Laban and he's mixing all this stuff together and he really, really, really does not want to see Jacob go. So what does he do? Okay, he makes him an offer. 
And his offer is what? Name your wages. Okay. Now, we've been here before, haven't we? (laughs) Fourteen years ago we've been here. (laughs) Name your wages. Okay. And what did we learn about when you're in a negotiation and somebody asks you to name your price? First one to name your price loses. Okay. Well, that's the rule. Here's the exception that proves the rule. Okay. Here's the exception. Now, Jacob has an advantage here he didn't have 14 years ago, which is wit. What? Actually, he's got more than one advantage in this negotiation. Pardon? He knows Laban. Okay. So now he knows what he's dealing with. What's his other advantage? He knows how to breathe the sheep. Yeah. He's got proven worth. He didn't have that before. So he's got proven worth. Okay, he's got the blessing of God and he's got this skill and this knowledge about about breeding sheep and feeding sheep and and all this sort of thing. And he has made this guy rich. Okay, so he has tremendous leverage here now in his negotiation. And so notice at first he declines and he declines because he wants to go back home. He wants to build his own house, so to speak. Okay. So Laban has to make him an offer that's really going to be persuasive. Now, it's true. If he leaves now, he leaves with nothing. Okay. If he leaves now, he leaves with nothing. So there would be some advantage in him staying because he would be able to build up and have something to go back home with. Okay. If he goes back home now, he has nothing with which to get home. Once he gets home, what does he have? He's got everything when he gets back home, doesn't he? Okay. If he can get if he can get from Haran to Canaan, when he gets back to Canaan, he's got the birthright. And he's got the blessing. Okay. But all of that means nothing to him right now while he's in Haran, okay? At least the birthright doesn't. The blessing surely does. But the birthright really means nothing to him right now. So so he really it would be to his advantage uh, to some degree if he could stay and kind of build things up a little bit. So so at first he declines, but Laban comes back and asks him again. And what is he asking? What shall, I give you? what shall I give you? He just kind of throws it wide open, okay? And Jacob's response is what? Don't give me anything. What does that sound like? Does that bring back any memories? Abraham. Abraham, right? Yeah, well, King King of Salem. King of Salem, yeah. The King of Salem comes out and starts to negotiate with Abraham. And Abraham's in this tremendous position of power in that in that negotiation. And Abraham says, I don't want anything you can give me. Because I don't want you to be able to say you made me. And I think to some degree, Jacob is doing the same thing here. Perhaps not with as high of spiritual motives as Abraham had. I don't know. But I think to some degree he's going, I don't want, I don't want in any way to be obliged or obligated to this man. Why not? He wants to leave and... You don't want to be obliged to Laban because it never ends. Laban is a crook. And Laban is a pagan. And he just doesn't want to be, to use a New Testament phrase, unequally yoked. Okay? So, so, and yet there's some advantage to Laban, or excuse me, to Jacob here, if he could stay. As long as the situation was right. Okay. What does Jacob need to make the situation right for him to stay? His own property. Okay. He needs his own property. He needs his independence from Laban. 
Okay? And that's why he says, don't give me anything. I don't want anything. Basically, what he's saying is, I don't want to be obligated to you. I don't want to be on your payroll. But then he qualifies it and he says, just do this one thing. Basically, all Jacob wants is to be set in a place to be independent. And he says, if you'll set me in a place where I can build my own house, have my own property, begin to build my own plan, if you'll put me in a place where I can do that, then I will feed and care to care for your flock. Okay? So that's what he does. He, he makes them an offer. And the offer is what? Okay. Give me the give me all the off color sheep and goats. Okay. Now the sheep uh, sheep uh, typically are, and particularly in the Middle East, typically are white. But a rare number of them are born with some kind of blemish, okay, or color on them. Okay. Uh, uh, some sheep are born black. And we talk about the black sheep of the family, okay? And the idea is they're rare. They don't happen very often. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's pretty low, okay? And the same was true with goats. The goats are typically black or brown, okay? But some of them are born with white in them, so they're spotted or speckled or striped or whatever, okay? And again, it's a very small percentage. Now, Jacob offers to do what? His, his request or his offer is to do what? Okay, to take the off-color sheep, how is this going to be done? How is it going to be accomplished, according to Jacob? Okay, Jacob's going to pass through the flock, and he's going to take out all these off-color, I'll just use that term, all these off-color animals, and he's going to set them aside, and he says, such shall be my wages. And it, it, it's really not explicitly stated here in the narrative, but the idea, as we see as we go forward in the story, is quite clear. From this point forward, I will also get all the off-colored ones that are born. Okay, Very small percentage of those that are born, but anyone that's born that's off-color, I will get. That's the agreement. Okay, Such will be. So I will go through, I'll take out all the off-color ones now. That'll be my seed flock. And I'll go from there. And also, any one of yours that I'm caring for that are born this way, those will be mine. And from this point forward, if you want to know if I'm being honest, you just come and check me out and see if there's anyone in my flock that is not spotted or speckled, it's stolen. Okay? Pretty straightforward. Why did you do that? It's a black, it's a black and white issue, no pun intended. It's a black and white issue and Laban can't manipulate him. Okay? So he's, he knows what he's dealing with now. What is Laban's response to Jacob's offer? Yeah, he jumps. Why does he jump on it? it he thinks it's to his advantage. He thinks, boy, this guy's dumber than I thought. Because he's he he thinks he's just taking this little small, but he could ask, you know, he could ask for half the, you know, half the profits. He could ask for all kinds of things. What does he ask for? He asks for this little small percentage. Okay. And so Jay, so Laban jumps right on it. What happens next? Wait a minute. What? Laban takes out all those spotted. What? Are you sure you got that right? Oh yeah. Wait a minute. What was the agreement? What was the agreement? Jacob would call the flock. And such would be my wages, he said, right? But Jacob doesn't call the flock. Laban calls the flock. And what does Laban do with the flock he calls out? Gives them to his boys to take care of. And then what does he do? 
Three days journey. Okay. And then notice the last phrase. What does it say Jacob does? Well, how does it say it exactly? Jacob fed the what? Rest of Laban's flock. What is he saying there? All Jacob had were all the white, hurting flocks. No, no. Laban's still treating it all as his. It's all still Laban's. He's gone through and he's called out all these striped, colored, whatever, and this was going to be Jacob's seed flock. It was going to be it was going to be his seed money to start his corporation with, right? But instead of Laban keeping his word and doing what he said, he calls the flock. He takes the striped and spotted. He gives them to the care of his son and he says, you only get what's born from this point out. Second time that Laban has changed Jacob's wages. And we're going to find out next week or a couple of weeks that he actually does it ten times. Okay. But what we have here is that is that they have made the agreement that Jacob would call the flock and those that he calls out would be his, his seed money, if you will, by which he would start his family business. Okay? Laban says that he agrees with that, but what Laban actually does that very day is Laban calls the flock before Jacob gets a chance to. And he takes that flock, gives them into the care of his son, and sends them away three days' journey so Jacob can't get them. And then Jacob is stuck taking care of all these regularly colored flocks that are the rest of Laban's flock. In meaning, it's all Laban's flock. So Jacob doesn't get any seed money, if you will. He starts from scratch. Now, if you're Jacob at this point, what do you do? He didn't, I think he didn't keep, it, keep the bargain. So I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah, you might split. I don't know what you do, but I'll tell you one thing. I'd be pretty mad. And maybe he was. Didn't seem like Jacob was too surprised, though. <laughs> 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 kind of like, well, this is the guy. Yeah, you may be right on that. He may not have been surprised. But what strikes me here is Jacob still has the advantage. Why? He still has God's blessing. Laban couldn't take the blessing of God. Somewhere he had, it doesn't say when, in this chapter he had this dream about how to do that stuff. Yeah, we'll get to that. Point, we'll, we'll get to that. One commentator suggested it was at this point, but I think most commentators see the dream as happening later, towards the end of the six-year period. So, uh, But we'll talk about that when we get there. But the one thing Jacob has is he still has God's promise. And he still has God's blessing. And the lesson that I, that I would hope we would walk away with from this is we all have experiences in our lives where people betray us. We all have experiences in our lives where people manipulate us. We all have experiences in our lives where people take advantage of us, right? You've all had it happen. I've had it happen. You've had it happen in the past and we'll have it happen in the future. Because that's just the nature of the beast, right? But the question is, how do we respond when that happens? Now, Jacob doesn't throw a fit and run off. He fulfills his end of the bargain. He stays put. He does his job. And God does bless him. And he ends up far wealthier than Laban. Because he has the blessing of God on his life. And so, in the circumstances in our life, when we encounter these situations where we're taken advantage of or manipulated or exploited 
or wronged in some way? Do we just get bitter and angry and just, you know, and want to retaliate? Or are we able to say, well, they've got all that, but I still have the blessing of God. And if I can just walk in the integrity and honesty that God has called me to walk in, I have His favor and I have His blessing. And I'll let God deal with the Labans in my life. I'll let God take care of the Labans in my life in the long run. Now, I would suggest to you that's not exactly what Jacob does. (laughs) As we'll see. But it's very clear that's what we ought to do, isn't it? I mean, if we have the blessing of God on our life, if we have the favor of God, what more could we want? And if someone takes my house and my car and my money and my and everything I have and exploits me and manipulates me, if they do all of that, the one thing they cannot do is take away from me the one thing that ensures my future. And that is the favor and the blessing of God. Okay? Well, next week we get into the whole thing of this genetic engineering. We'll talk all about that. Okay?